Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are. Leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Wednesday, January 8th, 2020. <laughs> it's weird to say. We're now in 2020, guys. Uh, this is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serrata. And joining me to this podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Writers Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. Okay, so today we're gathered all together to have a water cooler episode. I don't think we've done one of these in a month. Is that correct? Yeah, the holidays really threw us off, but it's, it's going to be back in the same room, finally. Yes, and it's going to be back on this podcast. I was not feeling too well. Uh, Kitra had has been sick, and I caught some of it, and I don't know, whatever. It's been a funk, uh, but we're now. I'm now back, and uh, we're now here with the watercolor. So, so let's jump into it. Let's discuss what we've been up to, which is like too much. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I it's like a whole month, but I'll, I'll try to get to some highlights here. Um, uh, you know, I went to this, on this big trip to Walt Disney World to cover the opening of Rise of the Resistance, the new Star Wars ride. We did a whole podcast on that, so you can listen to that there. Uh, but the day before that, my microphone stopped working, and I had like an hour to get to Best Buy before it closed. So I, I ran to Best Buy. I took an Uber to Best Buy, uh, which is, you know, an, you know, a mile away from my house or two miles away from my house, whatever. Um, and I... Got the mic so that would be good for the trip. And I, I went over to the bag section. I was like, I could use a new camera bag for this trip. So I, I put like – I was trying on camera bags and I decided to get uh, get a new camera bag. And I, wa- I, you know, I went and paid for my mic and the camera bag. I went out the exit. The, the guy was shutting the door and locking the doors. 
as I was leaving. And uh, I went into my called an Uber, got into the Uber. And as I got into the Uber, I realized that I had a backpack on my back that I was trying on and the backpack that I had purchased. So I just stole a backpack from Best Buy. <laughs> Should you be uh, announcing this on the podcast, Peter? <laughs> well, well, I, I wanted to ask you guys because, like, I I only realized this until I was like halfway home and going back to Best Buy. Like, they had been shutting; they were shutting the gates. I was like there after closing. They wanted to like leave, right? So I, I tried to call them, and I was like, you know, I was going to call them and be like, you know, I'll return this tomorrow. I wasn't meaning to steal this bag that just happened to be on my back. That like I, it was so comfortable. I didn't realize it was on my back. Uh, what would you guys have done in this situation? Uh, as someone who owns a car, I would have gone back myself. But it's much harder for you as you live in L.A. and use ride shares. Well, I, but... I could have went back, but they were closed. Yeah. And I was leaving the next morning, early the next morning, for this you know trip for a few days. So... Now, if you announce your crimes to the world, you should probably return it next time you're at that Best Buy. <laughs> no, I, 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 I had Ketra... The next day, go to Best Buy and return the bag, uh, which the loss prevention people laughed at her and told her that uh, he could have just gotten away with it. So, so there Great you go. Great job, security. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's the message to send to your customers. They don't care. <laughs> Best Buy doesn't care. Steal I... away, guys. You should have kept the damn bag. Now I'm mad at Best Buy. <laughs> I've been mad at Best Buy for years. <laughs> But I just thought it was such a funny predicament to be in because it's like, do you return it? Do you like, how, what do you do? Like, I don't know. Uh, but I didn't want to like, you know, be known for stealing a bag from Best Buy. Uh, you know, it, it's something, you know, I totally did not intend whatsoever. That's a weird position for Best Buy to take in an era where online shopping is probably eating into their business pretty yeah. seriously. <laughs> I, I'm sure it's just some of the people that work there that like, you know, this is you know, in peak holiday season, they're probably annoyed at all the customers. I don't know. Who knows? Yeah, but, yeah, it made me angry, too, Jacob. <laughs> because it's like, I was just trying to be a good person and do the right thing. But, uh, anyways, uh, what else did I do? I, I spent New Year's Eve at Universal Studios. Universal Studios Hollywood has this thing every year for New Year's Eve. It's a party called Eve. I made a video for that on Ordinary Adventures. You can check that out. But uh, it, it was cool getting to see... In in Orlando, at the Orlando parks, there's, like, fireworks every night. You know, like, there's there's a lot of stuff that you can do. But here in Hollywood, Universal Studios is in the middle of a residential zone. So it's very rare that you get to see fireworks over Universal because they just don't have permission to do it. So it, it was great to see, like, a fireworks show over the Hogwarts Castle set to, like, you know, Back to the Future, Jurassic World, uh you know, all, all, like, all the, like the best of Universal, like John Williams, like Harry Potter and like that kind of stuff. Uh, I wish I wish we could do that every night there. But anyways, um, what else have I been up to? I got dragged uh, over the weekend to this uh, shag, the artist shag who I love. He does a lot of these like uh, I got to fall in love with him because I knew him from Disney. He does a lot of like Disney work for Disney. But he has like this very 60s, 70s tiki kind of style to him, to, to his artwork. And he has a art gallery in Palm Springs. He actually has one like in Melrose in, in closer to me. But uh, he was doing this event at his Palm Springs location because he did this uh, 
this painting for Kevin Smith that uh, celebrates like the the Jane Silent Bob films of Kevin Smith, and it like combines like a bunch of different movies from Dogma to Jane Silent Bob Strike Back to Clerks, and it, it's actually a pretty cool piece. I didn't buy it, but one of my friends did, and, and with the purchase, he got a VIP meet and greet and uh, party kind of thing there. So I went with him down there and uh, we, we recorded a video on Ordinary Adventures so you can check that out as well. Uh, but I got a chance to chat with Kevin Smith for a while about uh, Mallrats 2, which he's now working on. What What is it called, Brad? It's like the Revenge of the Mallrats or the... It's it's not called I, Mallrats I, 2. Yeah, I forget what... what the, I think what it's called Twilight of, of the Mallrats. Yeah, there it is. Yeah. Twilight of the Mallrats, yeah. Anyways, it, it was interesting to see. Well, first of all, it was interesting. You can see that guy like on screen and see how much weight he's lost, like on a, you know on YouTube. But seeing it in person, it is insane. Like he's lost two thirds of himself. It looks like he's like skinny. It's it's, it's crazy. Um, and I, I I got to buy uh, a a shag piece uh summer of 77 which is this piece where uh, a kid is playing with his star wars toys it's like totally me again watch the video if you want to check that out uh but i for the most part you know uh ketra has been sick so i've been in <laughs> next to her in bed you know watching things and catching some of her sickness so that's been what i have been up to jacob what have you wait been up to? wait wait did you make your sick girlfriend return a backpack for you? Is that what happened? No, no. This that was <laughs> we we haven't recorded this in so long that that was before her two okay. week long sickness. I was gonna say that's a, that's a worse thing than stealing a backpack. Like get out of bed and return my <laughs> stolen goods. No, no, no. She she was fine at that point. She okay. Was <laughs> but uh, uh, Jacob, what have you been up to? I had a thoroughly unremarkable holiday. So I'm gonna jump to more recent times. Uh, this is going to be a too much information thing for a lot of people, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, but a few of my freckles on my back over the past 12 years have grown from being freckles into being uh, very uncomfortable-looking moles. And I remember uh, my doctor, when I was a teenager, said, if these ever, if these ever get larger, that's a sign of possible skin cancer, go get them removed. So now in my 30s, I'm in, the, I'm in the decade where I go see a doctor that have parts of my back removed to prevent myself from dying young. So uh, yesterday, I went to the dermatologist and had... Um, uh, I was shot full of uh, of anesthesia or numbing, whatever you want to whatever you want to call it. That hurt a lot. I've those anesthesia shots uh, hurt more than any tattoo uh, I've ever gotten. And but the actual process of them scraping and tearing and removing uh, moles from my back uh, didn't feel a thing until today, where I changed my bandages about a half hour ago. And oh my god, I'm in pain now. Um, hopefully it's only, it won't be too long i think it's just a matter of them being exposed to the air and me taking a shower on them <laughs> but uh this is my way of saying if you're in your 30s go see your doctor don't die young it, it hurts but it's worth it i hate to ask this question jacob because yeah but i'm gonna do it anyways i'm wondering like how do they remove them do they remove them with like lasers or do they remove them with like sharp thing you know uh, I intentionally did not look. They were on my back the whole time. I was looking the other way. Uh, but there were no lasers. It was very clearly uh, tweezers. So, you know, pull them oh, and God. scissors and scrapes to, you know, uh, get rid of them. And looking at the actual wounds left over on my back, uh, you can very much clearly see that, you know, it was very much like a clip and and, 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 and uh, sand, more or less. Ouch. Well, yeah. I hope you <laughs> – I hope it doesn't hurt too much, Jacob. I'll live. I'll, you know what? I'll, and I'll hopefully live a lot longer now because I won't have skin cancer from freaking molds. Yeah. Brad, what have you been up to? 
Uh, well, I went to Utah for Christmas, and it's actually the first time that I've ever uh, done Christmas away from my own family. Uh, since my girlfriend moved out to me, we are now a couple that will have to travel for part of the holidays. We've uh, basically decided to split the holidays every other year. So one year we'll have Christmas with my family and Thanksgiving with hers, and then vice versa the following year, and just go back and forth with that basically as long as, long as it works. Um, so it, it created just a, a little bit of a weirder holiday situation. We had to do my family's Christmas, you know, later since we got back. And then my girlfriend also got sick, uh, pretty severely because her young niece and nephew had a pretty bad bug that was going around. Thankfully, I didn't get much of it until we got back. Uh, and it did wipe me out for a few days. Um, but she got the worst of it, I think. But, uh, it, you know, it was, um, pretty fun doing a different kind of Christmas with her family um, and, yeah, just trying to, you know, make some new traditions and basically change my uh, my entire holiday schedule. So, yeah, but it was it was pretty enjoyable. And on a weird side note, this is just something that, that happened. And it's not even all that interesting, but I'm just going to point out anyway. Um, we had to do some last-minute Christmas shopping, and we went to we had to find something that was specifically only available at FYE. And this is the first time that I've ever walked in – I've gone to an FYE that wasn't in – a shopping mall. It was part of like a little, like uh, mini uh, shopping plaza, basically, like its own store, as opposed to being inside of a, a larger shopping mall, which was kind of weird to me. That's weird. That's almost like those like Panda Express restaurants that are like standalone. It's yeah, like... exactly. <laughs> uh, HT, what have you been up to? Um, I went back home to Washington, to uh, Northern Virginia slash the Washington, D.C. area for Christmas. And while it was there, I went to visit the museum for the last time before it closed forever. Uh, the museum is an interactive museum museum that's um, dedicated to the history of journalism as well as journalism's like current uh, impact and on culture and everything. One of the uh, most one of its standout exhibits is that it changes uh, the front pages of it has the it it um, displays the front page uh, of every newspaper in the country um, and they change it every day um, so that was something that was always really cool to see this is not my first time going I've been a couple of times mostly because um, I went to American University and they would take us on trips there uh, and occasionally I got like some free tickets because this was one of the few museums in DC that you actually have to pay for. We're all very used to having free museum passes uh, because it's all run by the Smithsonian, but museum is a private mu museum. And uh, the reason it's closing is because of lack of funds, which is a very apt metaphor for journalism, sadly. Um, but yeah, it was, it was uh, great to see again and just kind of um, see what's, you know, the, what the kind of exhibits they have and they have some great history too like they go into the 200 year history of journalism in america and have some really old documents that um i'm sure will go to other museums or will go uh, on the road on, on some tour at some point but it was just a sad thing to see uh, a museum like this close and um so i got to see it um the day before it closed which, which was uh december 31st so um, it's now gone, and uh, I don't know where I'll be taking its place, but um, I'm, I, I, it'll probably be rented out to other you know, companies and other kind of things. But yeah, just RIP Newsium. That is sad, but at least it'll be available online as a blog, right? I think so, yeah. There... <laughs> well, that was a joke on my part, but it's actually oh. going to be available online? 
I don't know. Actually, no, wait, I don't know. I'm, I'm okay. lying. <laughs> I, 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 I was just making a, a joke that all the well, news is becoming blogs. I but... know that some of the stuff is going on the road for like some tours and stuff. Like they occasionally take these on traveling exhibits, but I don't think it'll be in any permanent <laughs> installation. So I guess it's kind of like a blog. <laughs> a traveling blog. Okay. Yes. Let's move on to what we've been reading. Uh, Jacob, what have you been reading over this holiday season? I'm taking a break from my Stephen King uh, marathon, as discussed last year. I read some nonfiction. I read two books uh, since the year began. Uh, one is A Dead Mountain by Donnie Ikar. And this is a uh, book about the D.L. of Pass incident, which is a Reddit and conspiracy theory favorite, because it's about uh, nine experienced hikers in the Soviet Union in 1959 who died under mysterious circumstances uh, Have and over the past decades have uh, inspired all kinds of conspiracy theories, ranging from you know government tests to UFOs to monsters uh, and Donnie Ikar sets out to essentially solve the case. And he ends up, uh, through logic, eliminating all of the craziest theories and reaches a conclusion that is very sober-minded, very scientifically sound, and very sad. And uh, if you're like me and we're obsessed with the other passages in it, it's like a spooky story. Uh, reading what probably actually happened uh, was a very fascinating read. So I saw Dead Mountain uh, by Donnie Ikar. I also read uh, Duel in the Sun by John Brandt. This is a book that I would normally not be interested in, uh, but I fell into it because I read an article version of it. This was expanded uh, into the full-length book. And it's about the 1982 Boston Marathon and uh, Dick Beardsley and Alberto Salazar, who, who uh, ran neck and neck for the entire marathon. And it's considered to be the greatest moment in modern running. Uh, and it ended up destroying both their lives. <laughs> and uh, in the years after that, the uh, aftershocks of running the Boston Marathon the way they did uh, had psychological and physical tolls that um, that were catastrophic. And the book jumps between the actual race and the past, present, and future in a way, in a way that's really cinematic. And I found it really thrilling and really moving. And uh, I thought it would be a great movie until I Googled what happened to one of the <laughs> one of the subjects only last year and realized, oh, you probably can't make this movie now after that happened to him. Uh, but the book itself is really thrilling, and that is uh, Duel in the Sun. I hate to ask Jacob, but what what happened? Oh, he, he just like one of the guys who's like a stand-up runner and a good guy in a book was caught like encouraging all of his new uh, students who he's training to run like to dope and like he's, all his dopey scandals. He's been banned from competition now. It's just a really rough story. Ooh. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Chris, what have you been reading? Uh, I read Robin by Dave Iscoff, um, and it, it's about Robin Williams and. Uh, I, I never really, I always thought Robin Williams was actually like a better dramatic actor than a comedian. I know, you know, he's obviously known for his comedy, but I never really quite appreciated his comedy that much. That's not to say I didn't, I like hated it or anything. I just never found it as funny as some people do. But this book is, is, uh, phenomenal. It's probably like the best biography I've ever read just because it, it, it moves really quickly and the writing style is very, uh, concise and to the point and, uh, it made me appreciate Robin Williams a lot more as just an artist. And it, it made me very sad because obviously, you know, it has a very tragic ending. But uh, I, I pretty much like devoured this. I, I read it in like three days. And uh, if you're just curious to learn more about Robin Williams or just read a really good biography, I, I would recommend this. But like I said, watch out for the ending because it gets it, it, it takes a big nosedive towards being very depressing so um but it, it's it's a it's a very good read was there anything that was like really surprising that you didn't know about him that you learned from this book uh i wouldn't say surprising it just like i said it made me really appreciate 
how devoted he was to his his work and his art and uh the the common consensus from everyone who you know, gets interviewed in this book is that he pretty much had this sort of like photographic memory and that's sort of why he was so quick at everything you you basically like glance at something once and instantly have it memorized and at the same time that sort of like contributed to why he eventually uh took his own life because uh, you know he had this disease that was destroying this this great memory that he had had his whole life and he couldn't like pretty much handle it anymore and uh, so, you know, on one level, it's, it's amazing that he had that mind. The other level, it's really tragic that that sort of like played a part in, in his deaths. Like I said, it's not a fun book. It's good. HT, what have you been reading? I read The Secret Commonwealth, which is a new book by Philip Pullman. It's the second book in his The Book of Dust trilogy, which is a spin-off series of um, His Dark Materials. You guys might have heard me talk about His Dark Materials a couple times. It was a YA fantasy series that I absolutely loved, and I was just really excited to go back to this world with The Book of Dust. So um, I really enjoyed the first book in The Book of Dust, the La Belle Sauvage, which was a really slim uh, adventure story that took place before the events of His Dark Materials, but The Secret Commonwealth actually takes place after His Dark Materials, and so it was exciting to to see the characters again. Um, but this is a much denser and um, a little bit of a clunkier book. Uh, I really enjoyed the first half where it establishes all these really intriguing mysteries and it reintroduces our the heroine Lyra with um, a much more baggage, much more emotional baggage and a, a, a much um, more unlikable facets to her character, which I was really intrigued by, but then it kind of keeps piling on all of these mysteries and new characters. So it got a little bit um, weighed down by all of those, um, all that kind of plot. But uh, there are some really interesting moments where it goes into this really surreal type of fantasy that Philip Pullman hasn't really written before. It was almost um, on the style of like, a fairy tale or a magical realism. And I, I really enjoyed those sort of bizarre little uh, segues. But uh, as uh, overall, like The Secret Commonwealth is good, but um, it was, I think it got a little bit lost in the weeds in the second half. So that is The Secret Commonwealth by Philip Pullman, and it's available to buy now. And that's not the only book you read, right? No, I got for Christmas. I got an illustrated collection of Ursula K. Le Guin's Earthsea books. Uh, I'm a big fan of Ursula K. Le Guin, despite not having read a lot of her books. Um, her first two Earthsea books, The Wizard of Earthsea and The Tombs of Atuan, made a really big impact on me when I was young, and uh, I was constantly—well, not constantly—but I would now and again search for other books in this series and other books by her and always had real difficulty finding her books in bookstores. So I was really excited to get this illustrated collection. It has these beautiful uh, illustrations. I don't know who by, who they are, they are by, but they're really gorgeous and go with the tone and the high fantasy concept of her books. And um, they're with each book in the Earthsea collection, which I think ranges to about five um but it's i'm really excited to dive into all of these and um i've only started i've only started a little bit into it but um i can't wait to read more of them and uh see where it goes next so that's the Earthsea collection it's really big too it's like this huge beautiful hardcover that uh looks like a piece it's like it has this dragon on top it looks like a piece of art i'm i'm, I'm excited i'm really happy 
Well, very cool. You know, I wasn't going to mention anything for the what we've been reading section, but uh, your the whole illustrated comment uh, brings me to think that like, I did. I was reading the Pablo Hildalgo uh, is he he is a member of the Lucasfilm Story Group and he writes a lot he ends up writing a lot of the Star Wars books uh, in a book series that I love for all the films is the Visual Dictionary so they always like they're very like well uh, just like laid out like it, it, you just get tons of photos of characters that were like in the background and you get to learn details that were not in the film and fill in the gaps. And uh, they have been honestly a, a godsend for this sequel trilogy and even like, you know, Rogue One and uh, Solo and uh, stuff, stuff like that. Uh, my one complaint with this one for Rise of Skywalker, and I tweeted about this, is that they made the book smaller than the others, like shorter. So when on when they're on the bookshelf, they as a series, they don't go together. So I wanted to ask uh, Jacob and Chris because you guys are the the big book collectors here. I think like would that bother you that like like they make the third edition of the series of books a different size? Oh yeah, this is one of my uh, greatest <laughs> pet peeves. Uh, if you change the size of your book uh, in, in part of a series, you're a monster, absolutely monstrous thing to do. I'll never forget. Uh, <laughs> Uh, speaking of physical media, like the most infamous example is when they changed the design of the Simpsons DVD cases. I think it was season six, and the creators like made fun of everybody for like, oh, you care about how the cases look? Haha, ha, that's how silly you nerds. But I was like, fuck off. I want them uniform, damn it. Uh, and I, it, DVDs must all look the same. The books must all line up. If you change your logo or graphic design or anything, you're, you're just you're just making it hard on all of us, and it, you're killing physical media. This is why people want digital now. Stop it. Chris, what about you? Does something like that annoy you? It uh, um, not so much with books, but it definitely does with like Blu-rays and DVDs. Um, especially if like a sequel comes out and it has a title that's like alphabetically before the original movie, that oh, yeah. really bothers me because I alphabetize my Blu-rays because I'm an, a, a lunatic. So I I really hate when that sort of thing happens. But then at my, the same, same time, is... you, you get mad when they change Raiders of the Lost Ark into Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's a spe- eh, yeah. I, I can't win, Peter. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> my Blu-rays and DVDs are alphabetized as well, but when it comes to franchises, I just put them in like release order. So I don't care about the alphabetizing in that case. Anyways, uh, and I also saw in in the UK, the size of the book matches with their previous versions. So now I'm like, should I rebuy those two books and sell the ones I have so that I can look at my shelf without like having OCD problems? But or, or is, is that going too far, Jake? That's going a little too far. I think uh, at this point you can just write it off. But okay. you have every right to be uh, hideously annoyed. Okay. Um, okay. Let's move on to what we've been watching. Let's start first. Uh, Brad, what have you been watching? Oh, uh, so a, a bunch of us watched this, so we'll, we'll all talk about it. Uh, I watched John Mulaney and the Sack Lunch Bunch, which is uh, a new comedy special from John Mulaney. And he decided to make what is uh, essentially an, an hour-long uh, kids show in the vein of like classic 1970s-style stuff like uh, Sesame Street uh, or The Electric Company and stuff like that. He has real kids, and they do uh, musical numbers, and there's these animated interludes. Um, and it's it's great because it honestly works on a level for both 
kids and adults. We actually talked a little bit about this on the Best of the Decade uh, podcast because we can almost considered a couple moments from this for the that list, but then we determined that since it's a special, it doesn't really qualify, but we still talked about it a little bit. And uh, this this thing is brilliant. It's um, it's not raunchy, so you can actually show it to your kids, and it has some really interesting kind of nuggets of wisdom, like to confront some complicated issues for them. But it also works for adults because it has some uh, meta humor and jokes that'll you go right over kids' heads. But it's it is hilarious, and it's it also is one of those things that really kind of uh, honestly makes you think because it talks about things like death and fear. And uh, I was I was not expecting this to be. Uh, so good for for what it is. Uh, yeah, it is a remarkably weird and remarkably specific thing. I watched it with some people who clearly weren't into it, uh, but I was I felt like it was speaking directly to me. Uh, the juxtaposition of the kids show with all the uh, darker ideas really does work because the ultimate conclusion here is that we're all in this together. The, state, the fears we had as kids still matter when we're adults, and we can't write off our feelings as children as you grow up because we live with those feelings, and it ended up being a surprisingly powerful experience yeah i have nothing to add more more to the, what brad and jacob said they've summarized it great it's a really funny surprisingly uh incisive uh variety show and i i just really enjoy, and the songs are really catchy too yeah i also agree i i just wanted to i guess give a special shout out to the algebra song which is one of the moments that i wanted to include in the top moments of the year uh, list but uh, as brad said we we decided this wasn't actually a movie but um yeah it, it was so funny <laughs> like just the there's this uh this algebra pun at the end where they talk about uh, or they talk about um solving for x and now you better solve for y and it works on this double level because you're asking like why like what the hell is going on in the song it doesn't make any damn sense at all um it's really really funny so um yeah it, it's definitely worth checking out chris do you have anything to say about this no, I mean, everything Everything said, I agree with. You know, the only thing I'll add is I hate children, and I didn't hate watching this. So that, to me, is is the ultimate proof that this is good. Because the kids in this are really good, and I, I like that it treats them... I won't say it treats them like adults, but it treats them like people. Like It's not like, like oh, you precious kids. Like It's just that... Like, it's it's treating them like like average people, not like you know adorable bundles of joy, which is what I can't stand when people do that with kids. So it's it's definitely worth a watch. I actually was reading an interview with John Mulaney, and he said the original cut was like an hour and forty minutes long, and I really want them to release that longer cut because I want more of this. I do want to give a shout out to Jake Gyllenhaal's truly off the wall performance at the end as well, the music. Uh, Mr. Music. Mr. Music. Oh my God. It, he was just tapping into his uh, chaotic Okja energy, and I loved every minute of it. <laughs> okay. Uh, what else have we been watching? I I watched uh, a couple weeks ago at this point, I watched uh, Marriage Story, the new film from Noah Baumbach. And I'll admit that, like, I. I'm mixed on him. Some some of his films I love. Some of them I I can't get as into. I feel like there's sometimes like a disconnection there of the relatability of like his upper to upper class kind of like white, you know, so white, uh, you know, stories that uh, it, it's not relatable. And, you know, it's someone who hasn't been married and doesn't have kids. I didn't expect that I was going to like Marriage Story. But this is one of my favorite films of this year. Uh, it, first of all, it, sh- it should be called Divorce Story. It shouldn't be called Marriage Story. Um, and uh, it's heartbreaking. It 
it absolutely destroyed me. Uh, the performances in this are just incredible. Uh, you know, not just Adam Driver and Scarlet, but you know, even the supporting performances here. And uh, it, I hate saying this because you know Woody Allen has gotten a, a bad. Uh, you know, connotation, but I feel like this has some shades of like old Woody Allen that when I loved his stuff. And, um, also this makes me hate divorce lawyers. So that's my thoughts on marriage story. Uh, HG, what did you think? I really liked this movie. Um, I, the, I came into this film, uh, knowing all of the sort of the scene that was memed so much uh, after in the aftermath of its release. So I was kind of, I had, was withholding my expectations a little bit, but Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson just performed the hell out of this. And I was surprised by how it was really funny and candid and just incredibly sad uh, in depiction of two people who genuinely love each other and whose love is really distorted by the entire divorce process. And, it, it's a really brutal film to watch, but more brutal in its depiction of divorce than of like of their relationship. I think their relationship was had was added a lot of nuance and complexity, which I really um, appreciated. And I know that there was a lot of debate over like who this film sides with because you see both their perspectives from uh, both ends of the film. Um, and I think that the movie, you know, being sort of semi-autobiographical, but from Noah Baumbach and like his divorce, uh, it its head is with um, Scarlett Johansson's character, but its heart is with Adam Driver's. No, that that totally makes sense, Jacob. What did you think of Marriage Story? Yeah, this is this is a rough movie, but it's also really hopeful and funny, which really helps it go down easily. I watched it with my wife, and uh, it, it really gave us a lot to talk about because. This is really a movie about how when you're in a relationship with someone for a long time, you arm them with all of your greatest secrets and weaknesses. So when it falls apart, you're, you're left with two people who know how to hurt each other more than anybody else on the planet. And uh, I mean, what is a marriage? But, you know, in a contract to uh, share each other's secrets. And when that falls apart, those secrets come out as knives. And uh, it's a really, really tough movie that understands that the person who hurts you the most is the person who loved you the most. And it, I think that too many Hollywood movies depict uh, divorce as being like, you know, a good guy and a bad guy. Instead, this is a movie about two people who loved each other and that love is gone and they all suffer this pain. And I think it's a really remarkable movie. Ben, what did you think? Yeah, I liked it a lot. I think um, what Jacob said on the podcast the other day really rang true to me. Like we were talking a little bit about the scene where Adam Driver sings at the end and Jacob was talking about how there's this sort of like unspoken connection that these characters share. Like they have all this history together and even after they officially break up and sort of go their separate ways, they're they're still linked by um, all of these shared experiences and, and their love for Stephen Sondheim in this example. Um, and I thought the movie did a really, really great job at presenting that um, that that balance and like HT was talking about, you know, like uh, being able to spark all of that conversation um, and have people be so fiery and and fired up about uh, believing that they're correct in uh, in which side the movie's taking, you know, ultimately, I think for the movie to be able to walk that line well enough to give people enough um, firepower to make those arguments uh, in an equally um, passionate way. I think uh, it just speaks to the overall quality of the of the story and the treatment of the, of its characters and 
Um, Laura Dern is amazing in it, so uh, I, I would not be surprised if she ends up winning, you know, an, an Oscar for that supporting performance. But um, yeah, I liked it a lot. Let's move on to the Safdie brothers' Uncut Gems. Uh, you know, I I liked their last film, Good Times. I was really excited for this. You know, it seems like that you know they got Adam Sandler, and there's a performance there that everybody's talking about. Uh, but you know, I won't start this out. Ht, uh, what did you think of Uncut Gems? I really liked Uncut Gems. And um, when I first, I actually saw Uncut Gems twice uh, since, we, since we've recorded last. Um, I watched it first at a screening and then I saw it with my, my parents. And um, I enjoyed it even better the second time. I think it's a movie that uh, I enjoyed better, even though I really liked Good Time. It, and like um, I sympathize even more with, with uh, Robert Pattinson's character in Good Time, despite his uh wreaking even more havoc and having a more of a pile of bodies behind him than Adam Sandler. I was just really fascinated by the the character and the chaos that Adam Sandler's uh, just has like uh, revolves around him. And um, I this is a movie that also made me care about sports, which I did not think would happen. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely a two hour anxiety attack of a movie, especially towards the middle of the film when there's that scene where the door won't open, but um, I th- <laughs> it just won't. The scene made our top 50 scenes of the year list. Yeah, it's yeah, it's fantastic. But I, I, not just having like a really tremendous Adam Sandler performance. I think it's a fascinating character study of a, a man who can't stop chasing that adrenaline high, despite having uh, a pretty comfortable life built around him, and this almost it's almost uh inspiring to see him try to ca- like catch that high and win every time despite like being um sabotaged every which way and uh it's it is like a very tragic sort of uh journey that we see him through and yet we end up you know sympathizing with him because that's what the Safdie brothers are excellent at doing at, at making this grimy uh New York a uh, film that and that really brings to light that that New York rhyme and just kind of um, is it's yeah it's a, I'm I'm losing my thought but it's yeah. a phenomenal film and I really liked it. Yeah, I I feel like you know first of all Adam Sandler should have never returned to comedies after Punch Drunk Love. Can we all agree upon that? Like I feel like that was his biggest mistake. Like he is such a great dramatic actor and seeing him in films like this make me wish that we're not getting those like you know straight to Netflix comedies from him or, you know, the pixels of the, the world. Um, and uh, it's actually kind of funny because one of my friends watched this movie with his uh, wife and his wife didn't know anything about the movie and thought it uh, only knew it was Adam Sandler film and thought she was going to see an Adam Sandler comedy and uh, hated the movie. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I can totally see that uh, expectations come into everything. And I think uh, that's one of my problems with this film is I, I was expecting so much based on, you know, good time. I loved good time so much. And I feel like this just didn't comp- it wasn't as good. I, I love the score, like the synth based score by uh, Daniel Lapitan, I think his name is. Uh, he also did Good Time, and uh, it, it's. I I really just don't like the ending of this film. I'm not a person that usually, you know, is that kind of guy. But I I really I don't know. I really did not like the ending. Jacob, what did you think? 
I was barely missed my top ten of the year. I really like it. Yeah, I don't like it as much as Good Time though. I think Good Time uh, has a pace to it that this one intensely doesn't, and I think, but and I kind of prefer that. Uh, but otherwise, this is a as HG said, this uh, this great scumbag character study. It really you can smell this movie. You can like feel this movie in your teeth. It it just rattles around in your brain. And it's not for everybody. I think I think Safety Brothers are making movies for a certain type of audience. People who want to be jarred and upset and uh, unnerved by what they're watching. It is not a good time with the movies. Uh, but it's certainly not a movie I'm going to forget anytime soon. Adam Sandler is Adam Sandler is so good here that it makes me angry. Like it makes me angry that he's he's wasting his time with these comedies. And I know he's rich. He wants to hang out with his friends. He can live his life the way he wants to. But damn it, man, I'm mad at you. You're so good. But can he make those, like, better movies with his friends? Like, why does he have to make <laughs> he crap? He wants to take a vacation to Hawaii, Peter. <laughs> and all of us will pay for it. Yes. Literally. Um, okay, let's move on to the movies that made us. This is a uh, Netflix series. This comes. I watched this too, Peter. I watched this too. Oh, you watched this too? Yeah, Brad, you're back. Great. Um uh, this is a show. It, it, it was originally the toys that made us, and now they've done a spinoff called the movies that made us. Uh, Brad, what episodes did you watch? Uh, I watched everything except the Die Hard episode. So Ghostbusters, Dirty Dancing, and Home Alone. Yeah, I watched uh, Ghostbusters and Home Alone. Uh, I wouldn't say this is like great television. Like you know, it, it is. It, it does feel cheaply made, and I don't love the like the humor of it all like it really feels like in your face but they really get some great interviews and they get some footage especially like this home alone thing like i i didn't realize that they shot home alone in a high school like that they built like the set like in like the swimming pool of a high school while it was like closed down and stuff like there's some great stuff let let alone the high school that they also used for ferris bueller and breakfast club yeah crazy uh brad what did you think of the movies that made us uh, yeah, I, I really like this. It's um, I like that it's not as fluffy as some retrospective looking back things that you, you see on, on cable from time to time. Um, it actually gets some really good interviews from people who were on the crew and working with it. I think Jacob talked about this before, how you kind of get some stories from people where they're not afraid to air their grievances anymore. Like there's a story in the Home Alone one talking about how Joe Pesci was pretty intimidating about and grumpy about the fact that he had a call time at 7 a.m. and literally dragged... Uh, one of the like the the I think the AD or something like that to uh, like the producer's office by his collar to be like, hey, I don't need to be here at 7 a.m. just because he he likes to play golf in the morning. <laughs> uh, and so like it's it's fun fun stories like that that make this interesting. I do think that the narrator is a little bit over the top cheesy, but I do like how they uh, use clips from the movie to to liven it up a little bit and uh, you know m- make some comedy out of it. It doesn't always land, but I think that it's. It's better than just having, you know, an, uh, a collection of only talking heads. Yeah, I, I do think it is worth watching just because of the stories that are in there that are, you know, usually when when I see like making of docs like this on TV, usually it's all the stuff I know. Not not to say like I'm all knowing or anything, but, you know, I'm a film geek and I, you know, like you, Brad, we, we like to dive into like all the behind the scenes stuff. So like when they make a documentary about the making of Back to the Future, there's rarely something that I won't know. The thing I like about the, these are that there is details and there is footage I've never seen. So, and uh, I like that uh, for uh, the later parts, um, they they go back to one of the like on location uh, sets that they use for the movies. Like they go back to the Home Alone house, and uh, they went back to the the summer camp where they uh, that substituted for the Catskills in Dirty Dancing, and you get to see how things have changed since they they shot there. 
Yeah, and uh, Ivan Reitman and uh, Dan Aykroyd are, like, going to the original locations in New York. Yeah. It's kind of fun. Anyway, so that's the movies that made us, and that is on Netflix now. Uh, let's talk about Cats. I have not seen it. Brad, you've seen this movie. Oh, boy, did I see this movie. Oh, <laughs> uh, man. Uh, I uh, I could not stand this movie whatsoever. Uh, I was hoping that it was going to be entertaining on a level of, man, this is so bad and crazy that I'm just – getting so much entertainment at it, but it just, I, I felt like I had a really bad fever uh, and I was stuck in bed just, just watching this dream play out that I couldn't get, get away from. Granted, I could have walked out of the theater, but it's one of those things where you just, you just can't look away. It's just, this movie is, is nuts. I don't know how this musical ever became popular. Uh, I don't know why it's, it seems so beloved. I don't know who thought it was a good idea to spend $300 million on this movie. The, the only good part of this movie is Jennifer Hudson belting out memory, which is obviously the, and for good reason, the only song that anyone knows from Cats because the rest of them are nonsensical ridiculousness. And she belts it. It's a moment that feels like it belongs in a completely different movie and is nowhere good enough to be in this acid fever dream. (laughs) Chris, you also saw this film? I sure did. I saw this on Christmas Day with my wife because we we love each other and we wanted to go see Cats. And uh, it is a deeply cursed and deeply horny movie. And um, <laughs> wait, wait, I, wait, why is it deeply horny? I, I've not seen all this. The, so this is... All the cats are basically naked people with a very thin sheen of fur. And they're just rubbing against each other and rubbing against every prop. A lot of gyrating too. Yeah, it's very weirdly sexual. And uh, it's not like so bad it's good. I would never say that, but... I can't say I was ever bored watching it. Like I was just so perplexed and horrified at what I was seeing that I never was once like, well, this is boring. I was just, I was transfixed at, at the, the nightmarish imagery before me. Um, so yeah, I, I'm, I don't regret seeing it. I will never watch it again. I'm glad I had the experience of spending my Christmas with cats. It's, it's a you know, Christmas. Chris, I'm still mad at Chris for not fighting for Gus to theater cat harder for our moments list. I tried. No one was backing me up. HT could have backed me up. She didn't. So. Uh, See? Yeah. <laughs> it, it's a Christmas that will be long remembered for Chris. HT, what did you think of cats? Well, I wrote the review about for cats on slash You can read that review later, but um, this is a nightmare movie. <laughs> Uh, For the first 15 minutes, I was just transfixed by the horrors that were unveiling themselves in front of me. Everything was off in terms of their dimensions, proportions. I don't know why the cats had human hands or human feet. And it's awful and terrifying. And uh, the most bizarre and weird things I've I've seen on screen. And honestly, maybe I I had to give it props to it for being like anything I'd ever seen on screen. But then uh, as it went on, I actually, unlike Chris, kind of became bored with it. Because once you became used to the uncanny valley, which you you know, terrifyingly do at one point. It just keeps happening. <laughs> they just keep <laughs> there are more cats coming and they just introduce themselves more. And at one point, Jason Drulo just screams milk. <laughs> and um, at another point, Rebel Wilson unzips her fur suit to reveal yet another fur suit underneath that has a halter top. And she there is she's leading a band of cockroaches with human faces that one of which she eats uh. and she has enslaved 
uh, to her. Um, See, and- how can you be bored by any of this, <laughs> it's HT? So, it's so- <laughs> I mean, I have to say, like, after I, I slept on it, I woke up the next day and like, maybe Cass is genius. And then I was like, no, it, it's it's not. But, you know, this is a movie that defies good or bad. It just is. It's cats. And <laughs> it's a... It's uh, truly an experience to watch, and um, I, I, I don't know if I would ever do it again. I was the first time I was like, maybe I'll go back again if I have enough enough alcohol, but I don't think I would subject myself to that again. Okay, here's the question I gotta propose to you guys: Is this movie a movie that is so bad that it's good that it's 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 worth the people that are listening to this that have not seen Cats yet? Is it is it worth me going to the theater to see this just to experience this? No, absolutely no. not. Yeah, but not if, at all. If someone was like, hey, want to watch Cats? I have it right here in front of me for free. Then yes, sit down and watch Cats. But don't don't go out of your way unless you have like literally nothing else to do. You have or a little bit of like, sadism to you, then maybe. Or if someone offers you acid and then a ticket to Cats. <laughs> uh, okay, so don't see Cats is, is what we've decided, I guess. Um. I, I'll start things off with what I've been watching with. I saw a movie called Don't Fuck With Cats? Or is it Don't F-K With Cats? How well, How is this How is this even pronounced? They can't say fuck because it's the title and it's on Netflix. But yeah, it's basically Don't Fuck With Cats. Chris, have you seen this movie? No, I refuse to watch it because I, I, you know, I love true crime. And I love Netflix true crime docs. But I read that this has you know animal cruelty stuff in it and i can't i can't do that i i don't care when people get hurt but animals i can't handle so i i i can i probably will never watch this yeah uh this is a mini series uh it is on netflix it's directed by mark lewis and i don't want to give too much away because and i would recommend not reading the plot synopsis for this because you know it is a true crime story and it does go in directions that you don't expect but the 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 overall premise, like the very like tip of the iceberg premise, is that a group of online justice seekers are tracking down a guy who has posted a video of himself killing kittens on, on the Internet. And they basically decide to create this Facebook group to try to try to hunt him down and, you know, get him turned into authorities. And uh, yes, this the fir- uh, this this the first episode does have. Some of that foot, that initial footage, it, it does cut away and it does show people watching the footage. Uh, I would say that if if you are worried about that, and I'm not saying, Chris, you should watch this movie, but you could close your eyes and you'll know when it's over by here. You know, just you'll get the sense of what's going on listening. But maybe even that might be too much. OK, it's because you hear cats, you know, scream or Screen. Yeah, I couldn't. I really couldn't yeah. do it. Uh, just but, knowing it was there would just really bother me. Yeah, but I, I closed my eyes. Uh, th- this is a very binge-worthy uh, series. I think it's like three episodes. I think it would make a better like two-hour movie, but everything wants to be making a murderer nowadays. Um, this is – it's interesting, you know, that the internet investigators were ahead of the police and also at times, you know – it's just like you know reddit and so get, they get things wrong and it, it, it's it's interesting to see the twists and turns of the this the story and where it ends up going uh i wish that the internet investigators were more a part of the the later parts of the series uh, the, this story because they it kind of starts there and they're not really as involved as as it at uh as the uh snowball 
goes downhill and builds up. Uh, but I would highly recommend this if if you can get through, um, you know, those moments. I think they show like uh, a couple videos in it that, um, again, they don't they they cut away, but. I would just recommend closing your eyes during those those segments. But uh, anyways, it, uh, don't fuck with cats. It's on Netflix. I also went to the theater and I saw A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. This is the, the movie starring Tom Hanks as Mr. Rogers. Uh, I had actually not seen any of the trailers for this movie and not known much of all. I knew that it was about a, a journalist that was going to interview Mr. Rogers. Uh, so I was actually kind of surprised that this was a little bit of a bait and twitch for me that uh it's not really a Mr. Rogers uh biopic at all it, it's really about this 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 journalist character and uh how Mr. Rogers uh changes changes his life um i do love how this movie breaks the fourth wall and tom hanks is perfect as mr rogers and this the, the movie perfectly captures the lo-fi nature of the show and it will have you crying. It's uh it's like a cinematic therapy session and uh, on paper, it's pretty obvious, but it, it's just well executed and I, I, I enjoyed it. So that is a beautiful day in the neighborhood. And uh, I, I have my AMC a list and uh, I saw, I went to see Jumanji the next level I told myself that it pr- probably can't be as bad as people are saying. Um, it's not good, guys. Uh, it's it's uh, I, as a person who liked the first one or the second one, whatever you want to call it, the last one. Uh, I this one on paper on paper this one sounds like it should be good. Like it, it's taking these people who got put into this video game world as different avatars. And it's like we're going to switch them up so different. People are going to be in different bodies, and that sounds like it would it could lead to some some great comedic moments. But instead, it's just Rock doing a Danny DeVito imitation for the whole for most of the movie, and it's very painful to watch. And uh, that's coming for someone who is a big fan of the Rock. Uh, it's same but different, but not any evolution. It's like one of the things I liked about the last Jumanji movie was how it kind of used the tropes of a video game and this does not add anything new to those tropes or those ideas. It's just doing the same thing, but you know, a new level, I, I guess the next level. Um, but, uh, and I wish like there was like, if you're going to do another Jumanji movie, why not push it further? Like the first one was a board game. The next one was a retro video game. Why not like bring it into like, you know, a VR world or, you know, change, you know, do something interesting with the game mechanics and what has changed in time. This doesn't do anything. I, I cannot recommend Jumanji in the next level to anybody. So I, I, Peter, are you pitching Ready Player One? Ready Player One on paper, I think, was a good idea, too, I would say. But uh, or actually, maybe not on paper because a lot of people hate the book. But as an idea... <laughs> This is a good idea. Um, okay. Uh, the other thing I watched, I watched an, uh, an episode of The Toys That Made Us uh, on Netflix. I watched, they have an episode on wrestling toys, which is actually super interesting if you ever followed the world of WWF and WCW and ECW, because those worlds and how things are going on inside those worlds and how they parallel what is going on inside the world of how the toys are made and w- what happens. Uh, it, it's just. Um, it's a fun show to watch 
if you if you like you know were ever watching wrestling and ever had wrestling toys, which I did back in the day, and uh, I I again I really hate the annoying announcer guy on this series. I wish they would just you know drop that, um, but uh, this is educational and fun, and uh, you know I got out of wrestling uh, years, I mean many years ago. I did, one of the facts that I learned in this episode that I didn't realize was that WCW or WWE bought WCW. How much, Jacob? You you have some friends that watch wrestling and stuff, so I know you know some about wrestling. How much money, without looking, do you think WWE bought WCW for? Uh, considering the wrestling crash, I think in the nineties, uh, I'm gonna guess like dirt cheap, uh, eighteen million dollars. Well, at one point, I think the Toy Makers paid $4 million for the, the toy rights for WCW. They w, WWE bought WCW for $4 million. <laughs> wow. Okay. I was, I, was, I was in the right ballpark of thought, but not the right ballpark of numbers. I mean, that's like a mansion for some people. Do you know what I mean? For millionaire. Like, that's insane. Like, the library of that, that that was a bargain for WWE. Anyways, anyways, uh, the toys that made us, that's on Netflix. Uh, I also watched uh, season two of Magic for Humans. Uh, season one I thought was really creative, but got a lot of criticism for possibly, you know, it, it, it's edited to be a funny show and it's not edited to be like, wow, look at the magic. It's, it's more trying to get you to laugh and enjoy it. And I think those cuts, people were questioning, like, you know, is this real or, you know, what is happening between these cuts is their CG. Uh, the, the second season does uh, attempt to make a joke of that in some funny ways and uh, has a couple funny things. But I feel like the cleverness that was in the first season is is not quite here. I, I think I enjoyed season one a lot more. Um, so I, I, I don't know. It, it's enjoyable, but. Eh. Uh, and the last thing I watched uh, over this holiday season was You Season 2. I think we talked about this when You came out. This was a – was it a Lifetime TV series? Something like that. But it, it got bought by Netflix. And this is kind of, I guess, like a romantic comedy meets Dexter-ish. I guess you would describe it as. And um, the first season takes place in New York. Uh and the second season brings things to L.A. And uh, it's kind of like a send-up of Los Angeles and making fun of parts of Los Angeles. Uh, it's soapy and trashy and enjoyable, but such so bad. It's it, it's a bad show, but I, I enjoy it so much. And uh, uh, this, this season, the main character, who is a murderer, <laughs> does horrible things. And he uh, stalks women. Uh, the second season tries to make him more of a good guy, and uh, I'm not sure that's a good thing. Uh, the I people keep on comparing this to Dexter, and it even makes a joke at one point about Dexter. So it it, it is a little self aware in that respect. I, I do think it's very enjoyable in a soapy, trashy way. The last episode of this second season jumps the shark so many times. It's remarkable. It should be like in the Hall of Fame, the Jump the Jump the Shark Hall of Fame. That it is just so. That last episode is so bad. But that said, if they make a season three, I I will probably watch it. Um, but uh, it 
it, it, and I will also want to say that th- this also has the Dexter problem where it has like each episode has these flashbacks to him as a child to kind of get I don't care about him as a child guys like I don't care about Dexter talking to his dad I don't care about him as a child just show us what's going on in the A storyline okay anyways that's my rant for today uh, Jacob what have you been watching uh, I want to talk about a movie that should not be as good as it is even though it's not very good it has Doom Annihilation the direct the uh, direct the video sequel to the Doom movie from 2005 ish anyway this is a very cheap uh very low budget thing. Doesn't have anybody involved in the first Doom movie. Written directed by uh, Tony Giglio or Giglio, however you want to say that name. Uh, shot in Bulgaria. Almost entirely not American actors playing Americans. They're struggling with their accents. Very low budget. Uh, very silly. Very campy. But you know what? Not bad for a directed video shot in Bulgaria thing. Uh, where everybody's accent is wonky. Doom Annihilation is surprisingly entertaining. It has a surprising amount of ambition to it. There's uh an eye to the action and to like the horror elements that like put the original movie to shame. And uh, it's clearly made people who actually play the doom video game and love it. It's full of like Easter eggs and references and little jokes that I really enjoyed. Uh, It is not good. It's not a good movie. It's streaming on Netflix, but if you like the doom games and you like direct video trash, this is very good direct video trash. I, I give it two thumbs halfway up or something. Uh, Doom annihilation, uh, not nearly as bad as you think it would be. Uh, on the opposite end, I want to talk about Little Women briefly. This is a perfect movie. The only reason it's not my favorite film of 2019 is that Parasite is a little bit more perfect. Uh, but I had no experience with Louisa May Alcott's original novel, except, uh, even though the women in my life uh, uniformly love it and swear by it. And I was bowled over by this film. Uh, Greta Gerwig uh, is just a quietly incredible director. Her camera is always servicing the characters and servicing the story. There's nothing showy or flashy about her work. And it's why people maybe not think she's going to, it's why she's not getting an Oscar nomination because she's not doing massive one takes or she's not bragging about her starving her crew in the wilderness uh, and and press. Uh, Her camera is just always in in the perfect place to deliver the perfect emotion. And, I was bowled over uh, by how well she has remixed the story by jumping between timelines for a maximum emotional effect and casting the perfect actors and actresses in every role. And it's such a warm movie. It's warm without being cheesy and it's uh, sentimental without being hokey. It is just a, it is a gem. It is an absolute gem. And little women, if you're one of those people who's like, I'm an, I'm a man. I'm not going to see little women because I'm a man. Fuck off. Little women's a perfect movie. Go see it. Okay. Uh, HD, what have you been watching? I just want to add on my my uh, comp- compliments for Little Women, too, because this is one of my favorite movies of the year. It's a movie I've already seen three times, and um, I will see it again and again because I never want to leave this world. And I've always had such a strong connection to the Louisa May Alcott story, the book that the book was one of my most read books as a kid, and the spine is all torn and shattered. And um, this Greta Gerwig's adaptation is definitely the film that best captures the world and the spirit that Louise May Alcott created. And um, it's just absolutely perfect and a warm blanket of a movie that I want to wrap myself up in and never leave. So Little Women, great movie. Um, I watched a lot of other films this uh, past month, so I'm going to try to go through them really quickly. Yeah, you, you have like a mountain of films here. I know. Well, it's because I was gone for like two weeks in Vietnam and then we didn't record it until after. So, you know, I got to do this. Okay, so, go for it. First up, Loose, 
really surprising, um, striking film by Julius Ona. Uh, this is a movie about a, a couple who, uh, a white couple who adopt a young boy from a war-torn company, uh, war-torn country, and raise him to be this model student. Uh, but a teacher at his school suggests that he may not be the model student he appears to be. And this is a really phenomenally acted movie that seeds the seeds doubt throughout and um, makes it really contemplates and, gra and grapples with the idea of white saviorism as well as the expectations that we keep onto the minorities and people who we lift up from their situations. It's a really just tremendously acted movie, especially by Octavia Spencer and Kevin Harrison Jr., who are just who delivers a real chilling performance. Um, it's definitely a movie that feels more like very play-like, but the performances just are so so phenomenal. And uh, the next one, Claws, 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 um, Netflix. Christmas movie that everyone has been hyping up until now and I've been really excited for because I'm all big fan of animation uh, experimenting with the different forms and mediums. This is a film that uh, sort of blends 3D and 2D animation in a way that kind of uh, expands the potential for 2D rather than doing the other way around and going with 3D first. And it's one of the most unique and beautiful animated films I've seen recently and tells a really touching story and really funny and smart story about uh, the origins of Santa Claus. And um, I really enjoyed this. I think it's destined to be a Christmas classic from here on out. If you haven't seen it yet, and if or if you are, if you have some sort of reluctance to watch animated movies, uh, I recommend this highly. Claws, go see it on Netflix. Another movie I watched on Netflix, Dolomite is my name. I really enjoyed this film. Eddie Murphy gives you know a great comeback performance. This is for first big performance in however many years, and he's just so energetic and buoyant in this role of. Um, Rudy, May, Rudy, da, da, da. Rudy Ray Moore. Rudy May, Ray Moore, yes, a uh, black exploitation star who um, basically ra raises himself up to be um, that star, and uh, is really—it's a real like American dream, pick you up by your bootstraps type of story and biopic, and it's also a nice love letter to. Um, filmmaking as well. It has one of the best like filmmaking montages uh, in this past year. We have it on our top moments of the year list. And uh, it's just so fun and colorful to, colorful to watch with some great performances all around. And Eddie Murphy, again, excellent. Next one uh, is A Hidden Life. Oh, this is a movie I adored. And um, I didn't expect to love it as much as I did. I can't say I'm a huge fan of Terrence Malick because I haven't seen a lot of his films and the ones I have seen I wasn't really impressed by despite them being really beautiful and I think that hidden, A Hidden Life really combines that that beauty and that majesty of nature that he has been able to tap into recently with this wonderful spiritual story of the power of human conviction and the power of human will. I feel like it's a movie that captures best, really captures the best um, of of movies I've seen, um, that spirituality, because uh, it follows a character who uh, is um, adamant in his belief that uh, the Nazis uh, are are the evil in the world, and he's an Austrian farmer who is in, who is, has been drafted to fight for them, and basically refuses to pledge his loyalty to to Hitler, and um, goes through hell and suffering because of it. And uh, it's it is kind of a bleak story because there's only one way that this movie 
really can turn out. And you question the character's uh, decisions every step of the way. And yet you throw your full support behind him because of that, the beauty of his conviction. And I was actually reminded a little bit of um, uh, First Reformed and how that it presents its characters as a as almost heretical in a way, um, as fanatical. And yet, while First Reformed gives this more nihilistic and bleak overview of the world, A Hidden Life gives such a almost optimistic, hopeful view of the world. Like it's a it's a really nice counterpoint, I think, to First Reformed, and a really beautiful movie to behold. All right, so next one, uh, da, 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 Atlantics. This is another film on Netflix that uh, was getting a lot of praise. It is directed by Maddie Diop, and it is a um, film from oh, what country is it? Senegal. It's a film from Senegal about a young girl who is destined to be wedded to someone but is in love with a construction worker who goes to um, who boards a boat to try to find better opportunities across the sea and his boat is soon found to be uh, toppled over with the boat's uh, occupants dead um, and uh, this is a film that at first presents itself as uh, a love story in a industrializing you know third world country and turns out to be a crime story and a supernatural crime story at that because um the his her lover comes back uh as a ghost that possesses another man as well as the other construction workers who come back to to uh enact vengeance on the man who um who uh conned them so it's a it's a really it's a really hypnotic and fascinating film and uh, really beautifully shot. It's a debut film by Maddie Diop. And um, I actually quite I highly recommend this if you uh, like ghost stories and love stories and ghost love stories. So that's Atlantics on Netflix. And I watched as well Long Day's Journey Into Night. This is the movie by Began. I think Ben has seen this. Um, yeah, I watched it on a plane this? and had a really terrible experience with it, but hopefully you had a better experience than I did. Uh, yeah, I watched this on my computer, and um, I actually I quite enjoyed this. The first half, I think, uh, was a bit slow for me, but then the credits, the title card comes on an hour into the film, and I was like, what is this? What is happening? And I realized that uh, this... This film is divided into two parts. The first half is about this man who returns to his hometown after his father uh, has died to for his father's funeral and uh, begins a search for a woman that he had met long ago that has been haunting his dreams and he had been in love with for many years and he can't forget about. And halfway through the film, he enters the theater, puts on 3D glasses, and the movie descends into this Kafka-esque a rabbit hole of a journey that is filmed all in one long take. This last half, this last hour is all one long take, and it's real, it's so mesmerizing and bizarre. And I really enjoyed that last hour. Like if that last hour was that movie, then I it might be like one of my favorite movies of the year. I think the first half was a little bit too um, slow and and puzzling to me. It doesn't get any more clear or or um, or obvious, but I was really entranced by that last hour. But um, 
I will say that this is, movie has gotten a lot of praise for its use of 3D effects and that long take and sort of like the technical aspects of it and um, how that 3D um, aspect actually bring to life that dreamlike quality of just wandering through the street and wandering through um, something, this area that blurs reality and uh, fantasy. It is really a, a a strange place that almost seem that seems very unreal. He he wanders through these kind of prison ruins that are also that's also the spot for a karaoke bar as mm -hmm. and other people who are living there. And it's it's really bizarre. And I I I absolutely loved it. But um, I feel like I would have gotten a better effect if I had seen this in theaters and seen that 3D effect um, because I liked it. But I was like, oh, I don't really get like that. Um, earth-shattering revelation that I feel like a lot of people who reviewed this, um, who saw this in, in theaters did. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm kind of bummed I didn't see this in theaters. I I know they're showing it in theaters in New York uh, soon, actually, again. So I think I'm going to try to watch it again um, in theaters in 3D and see if that has a better effect on me. Because I, I was really intrigued by this, and I, I really liked that last hour a lot. Um, I ne next movie that I watched was The Last Black Man in San Francisco. And this is the debut film by Joe Talbot. It's semi-autobiographical based on the, the life of his friend, Jimmy Fails, who stars in the movie as a, a young man um, in San Francisco who is fixated on the house that he believes his grandfather built. And um, now a white couple have been living in that house for 12 years and he frequently goes back to the house to try to keep it in repair and uh, fix it and um, keep it as he remembered it in his childhood when he lived there. And uh, it's a really beautiful, contemplative and stir soul-stirring film that um, is actually a really nice compliment to Parasite and how it uh, holds up the house as both a symbol of a social upward social mobility as well as an albatross and how that can weigh you down um, as well as you know talking about the gentrification of San Francisco uh, it's a really beautiful film and I, I, I found myself really affected by it and it's also one of the most beautifully shot films um, of the year I was just transfixed by every frame in this film it's really um, it's gorgeous so um, that's the last black man in San Francisco and that's streaming on Amazon Prime if you get the chance to to watch it all right, almost done. Lastly, I saw Pain and Glory, which uh, I didn't know if I would have the chance to see before I finalized my top 10 list 2019. Um, and I tweeted about that, and Chris encouraged me to watch it. Uh, thanks, Chris, because I love it. It's one of my favorite movies of the year. Uh, this is a movie that just filled my heart up completely. Um, I'm, I've always really enjoyed Pedro Almodovar's films. He always has this handle of heightened emotions, um, whether they're frustration or desperation or joy uh, or pain. And I felt all of those things in Pain and Glory, which is just like a culmination of, of I, I haven't watched all of his works, but it felt like a culmination of a lot of his works, as well as a really great meta um, uh, look back at his own career. I'm really enjoying too this sort of pattern in 2019 of uh, filmmakers sort of late in their career, or like well into their career, who look back um, at their lives in a real in contemplative and um, introspective films. You see, we saw that with Quentin Tarantino, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Martin Scorsese with The Irishman, and now uh, Pedro Almodovar with Pain and Glory. And I think I, I enjoyed Pain and Glory the most because it it offers such a 
uh, I, I keep saying hopeful, but that's just the kind of movie that appeals to me. Um, <laughs> a really hopeful and beautiful and uh, sun and almost sunny uh, way of looking at despite the years of regrets and uh, pain that have literally scarred his body. And um, Antonio Banderas gives just uh, a jaw-droppingly amazing performance in this. Um, just every look that he has with his eyes is just a... Uh, stares deep into my soul and I, I I absolutely love this movie. It feels like it's shouting its emotions and I, I will come I will happily receive all of them. So it's it's beautiful. Pain and glory. Um I also this is quick, I saw the new season of Terrace House which dropped on Netflix. I've talked a lot about Terrace House. It's great. There's new there is a new Italian member of the house who is not actually half Japanese. He's the first uh non Japanese member on the house and uh he is sweet and funny and can draw manga and i love him uh, and that's pepe on terrace house so terrace house on netflix great wait so we made it through all your movies I'm all done. your shows so i think to celebrate that we jacob can we agree not to to read from the book at the end of this episode peter we haven't read from the book in over a month we have to read from the book <sighs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I had so many movies. I tried a effort, Peter. I yeah. tried. Okay, Ben, what have you been watching? Uh, so I received Twin Peaks from Z to A, this incredible box set that contains so much stuff. It's like 21 discs. I did a, a big, um, like a, an unboxing video actually on my Instagram. So you can go to instagram.com slash Ben Pears or find me there and, and check that out if you want to. But this thing has like the first two seasons of the show, plus Twin Peaks The Return, the, the Showtime series that I uh, reviewed on the site as it was happening. Um, it has Firewalk With Me, the prequel movie. It has like deleted scenes. It has so much stuff. Um, it's basically like a one-stop shop for all things Twin Peaks. It, it has uh, over 20 hours of bonus features, including I think at least six hours of all new bonus features that have never been seen before. Um, I tried to dive a little bit into some of those so I could talk a little bit about that here because uh, I've probably talked enough about the show itself and I don't really need to get into that. But um, in terms of the bonus features and like some of the extra like added stuff that you'll get if you, if you decide to check this out, um, there's this really, really fascinating, uh, it's an 18 part series actually of what they're calling behind the curtain, which is like um, new uh, like almost 30 minute documentaries that are made about the making of each of the episodes of the most recent season. So it's a lot of content just about the most recent season. And it's really um, uh, sort of informative as to David Lynch, like the, the co-creator of the show. And it really like puts you in his headspace. The camera is basically just like hanging out with him the whole time. And you get to see him interact with the actors and uh, how they all relate to him. And, and it really just like proves that this guy is a singular visionary talent who has all of the answers in his head to the most bizarre questions that you could imagine because all of his stories and, and the uh, plot lines and everything are so off the wall. And, and you can see actors sort of like sidle up to him and be like, okay, so like, what exactly is going on here? Like, what what would you like me to do? And he instantly has the answer for it. It's so clear to me that he can see every single aspect of a project that he's working on in his head in the moment. And um, it, it's really what makes him, you know, such an auteur. So uh, I'd never seen anything like that, like the, the extent of 
uh, that you get to uh, of time, the amount of time that you get to spend with him in these behind the scenes things, especially is, um, is really informative and, and, um, just fascinating if you're a, a David Lynch fan. So I, I, uh, I just want to say I can't imagine ever being in the he- same headspace as David Lynch. I know. I mean, uh, of course, yeah, it can't it can't put you directly in there, but it gets you pretty close. And there's like interviews with Kyle MacLachlan and Cheryl Lee and and um, you know all of the the cast members and stuff. And it's um, it, it's really uh, a fascinating thing, and and I would say like a must own for Twin Peaks fans. So uh, that is Twin Peaks from A to Z. There's they actually only did like a limited run of this set. I think there's like 25,000 copies or something, but I looked right before we started recording, there are a bunch available still. So if you want to track those down, you can. Uh, okay, I also watched The Staircase, which is a, um, a relatively, I mean, it, we've talked about this on the podcast before a little bit. I think Chris was a big fan of this uh, limited series, and it, it sort of, they filmed several episodes about this uh, mysterious death where this woman died at the, the bottom of a staircase. And then years later, sort of picked up the story again. Um, it's this really, you know, sprawling, all-encompassing kind of uh, story that that really puts you, again, with the, the camera access and stuff, puts you in the home of the subject, the the um, person who is, like, accused of killing his wife. And it's a really fascinating true crime thing. The only thing I will say that I was bummed about is that I've heard all this stuff about the staircase. You know, like, uh, Harrison Ford's going to be playing this guy in a, uh, I guess, a narrative adaptation of the staircase coming up soon. So hearing all about this show from the outside, one of the things I'd heard the most about it is this whole thing about the owl theory. And I was like, oh, man, I'm excited to see, like, what this is. I didn't really know anything about it other than that. And I'll just say that, you know, there, there are several hours of this show. I don't even remember how many episodes there are, but it's a, a decent amount and a, a lot of time invested. And when you get to the end, they they don't even touch on the owl theory really at all in the actual thing. It's all like theorizing and, and information and stuff that was not really included in the documentary itself. It's all extra stuff. And the owl theory is the most convincing answer uh, to what happened to this woman because of evidence that has been gathered and, and uh, you know, put together um, after the the cameras were turned off or uh, it's something that the filmmakers just chose not to include for some reason. So I was really frustrated with that because I was like looking for, you know, a, a, as the as every episode ended, I was like, all right, well, next episode, they got to bring up this owl theory. I'm really like excited to see how this whole thing is going to play in. And it just never does. So. Um, I would still say that it's it's a fascinating piece of television, but uh, if you're looking for something with you know more definitive answers, I don't think it's going to be the thing for you. Um, Chris, what do you what do you make of that? What have you have you like looked into the owl theory and all of that stuff for yourself? There's a little like extra Netflix made that goes into the owl theory. I'll send you the link, Ben. But yeah, I, I watched that. Oh, um, okay. But like, it, that's on. I think it's on Netflix's YouTube page. Right, it's right. Not really like incorporated into the show itself. You know, like you said, like when I first heard like owl theory, I was like, well, that's probably stupid. But it actually, like, either he killed her or it really was this owl thing. And it's like, I feel like those are the two possible answers. And it, it is crazy that the owl thing seems really plausible, but I, I, I really don't know. Yeah, it was pretty wild. So anyway, that's The Staircase. It's all on Netflix right now if you want to watch it. But um, yeah, just be prepared if you are going to check it out and, and devote the time to um, do a little bit of extra legwork on your own and, and research and stuff because um, 
definitely you don't want to not know about the owl theory after spending all that time watching the show. So, uh, okay, there's that. And then I also, my wife and I watched Gosford Park, which is also on Netflix. Um, we'd never seen this before, even though it's a, a whodunit with a great, great British cast. Um, we're in sort of a knives out mood and decided to, uh, to finally check out Gosford Park. Uh, the cast for this thing is nuts. Like Stephen Fry, Michael Gambon, Bob Balaban, Richard E. Grant, a very young Richard E. Grant, by the way. Uh, Kelly McDonald, Helen Mirren is really wonderful in it. Clive Owen, Ryan Phillippe, Maggie Smith. I mean, it's like a, a murder's row of uh, a great uh, sort of ensemble cast. Um, I had never really heard of this. I just knew it was a whodunit. Um, so I was surprised to find out that it was written by Julian Fellows, who's one of the people behind um downton abbey and i've never seen that show but this movie feels very very similar to that and actually in reading about this movie it seems like downton abbey was originally going to be a spin-off of this movie and ended up being you know sort of a separate thing on its own but um i was not surprised to learn that but it's uh yeah another sort of agatha christie style uh whodunit mystery and um i think my favorite part of, about the whole thing is that uh in addition to the great performances, like I mentioned, Helen Mirren is, a, is a, especially a great standout. Um, but Stephen Fry plays the detective, like the Daniel Craig character or like the, the uh, Poirot character that, that so often is a major part of these movies uh, and, and this formula. And he is just like a complete non-entity in this movie. Like everyone talks over him. Like he can barely even tell people his name because everyone is so dismissive of him. Um, so I just thought it was a really fascinating approach that I'd never really seen before to this uh, pretty tried and true formulaic um, stylistic effort. So that's Gosford Park. It's on Netflix right now. And then finally, I watched uh, Killing Eve season two. So I'm, I'm fully caught up with the show. Um, I just wrote a news story, I think yesterday or the day before, that Killing Eve season four has been greenlit. The third season is not out yet. Um, after seeing the finale of the second season, I'm kind of, I'm a little worried about the future of the show because without getting into spoilers, I'm not really sure how the dynamic between the two female leads, uh, Sandra Oh and Jodie Comer, can continue in a way that's as compelling as it has been in the past. It sort of seems like they've reached uh, a climax to their relationship and, and they've sort of explored everything that they can explore. Um, but I'm very, you know, I'm excited to be hopefully proven wrong uh, and I'm definitely going to keep watching the show. Um, it just seemed like, man, I really don't know how they can continue on and keep a similar dynamic to the one that they've that, that's made the show so popular so far. So that's Killing Eve season two. Uh, I think it, it originally aired on BBC America and the second season just came on uh, Hulu recently. And that's where I watched it. OK, let's move on to what we've been eating. Jacob, what have you been eating? Jacob? Jacob, are you there? Sorry, I, I muted because I was editing a post, and now I'm unmuted. So, so uh, what what have you been eating? Uh, I more like what I have not been eating. Uh, as listeners know, I did keto for a very long stretch last year. I did a seven month straight in keto, lost a lot of weight. Then I sort of transitioned off. Uh, I still kept I kept exercising every single day, and I still do. Uh, but I didn't quite follow a diet for the last chunk of last year, uh, going off and on keto. Uh, but but also especially during the holidays eating poorly uh but now in the new year uh i'm reassessing everything and the thing is since i exercised enough i really didn't gain any weight back i gained a little bit during the holidays but uh otherwise i really had to stabilize so even though i swear by keto is a really really strong way to get the ball rolling i may return to it later this year 
I'm going to try low calorie here, but low calorie with my exercise regimen of exercising five days a week, uh, twice a day on those on those five days, and you know, seeing if this works for me. So I'm using my fitness pal to track my calories, and I'm. I'll let you guys know what happens, and if it doesn't work, back to keto. I will tell you, Jacob. I have dropped the ball in a major way. <laughs> I think I I lost sixty pounds, and I think I've gained thirty of it back. Uh, since starting this YouTube channel, we go to you know the theme parks and stuff, and we're all people like the the vlogs we do where we eat interesting new things in the theme parks, and it's hard to stay on a consistent diet during this. And and Kitra and I. Last night, we're just rewatching some of our first videos just to see how bad they were. And we were looking at them. We were like, oh, my God, we looked a lot skinnier back then. <laughs> so I need to get back on track. I need to uh, – the last uh, last week I've been back on keto, um, and I you know, have already get, lost a bunch of pounds, you know, that early – you could call it water weight, whatever, but it's you know it makes you happy. Like the first like yeah. six pounds, like drop off. Uh, but I'm 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 excited to be back on, and I think I think what what the problem with keto is is it takes your body a couple of days to get into keto. So when you cheat, you kind of reason to yourself like, you know, if I'm going to cheat in a couple of days from now, then there's no reason for me to be on it or go back on it again because I'm not going to whatever. And then you make these like these. You know, you you you've reasoned yourself in a bad way like that, and I think what I just need to do is, you know, when I have one of these theme park trips or whatever, I go off my diet for that day, and it's just that day, and I'm back on the next day. Yeah, and, and Peter, I, I know this is like scoldy sounding and yeah. obvious, but exercise has been really helpful. Like I said, I ate like crap uh, for for large stretches of the back, you know, few months of last year, but by exercising, you know, I stabilized i didn't gain much weight at all and i feel really good and i feel really strong and i feel you know i feel a lot better about my entire life ever started exercising consistently even if it's like going for a walk once a day or like buying a a bike for your apartment or your your condo or i really think that you know this will be something that that would really help you out i don't know like i i know i i know i should be more active i i do go on walks with my dogs but like every book I read from like experts in the subject always say that like weight loss is always going to come from your diet. It's not going to come from exercise. Uh, exercise is going to help you maintain like what you've been doing. Uh, so, yes, that yeah. probably would have helped me. <laughs> but um, I should be. You're right. You're right, Jacob. You're right. But uh, I, I do think some people take it the, the, the other way where they're like, I'm just going to exercise and I'm going to lose weight. And that does not work. You there? Well, I'm here. I, I, I thought that was the end of the thought. Oh, Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, on the other side of the coin, Brad has been eating all the bad things in this world. Brad, what have you been eating? Yeah, I've just been eating a bunch of junk food, and I've lost 100 pounds. It's crazy. You guys should try it. <laughs> <laughs> no. But um, so I, I got my hands on uh, a flavor of Mountain Dew that's only available in Japan. Um, as I talked about FYE earlier. And uh, FYE has been uh, they've been importing snacks from Japan lately and selling them in their stores. And so they got uh, Mountain Dew Violet, which is this grape flavored Mountain Dew. It also has hints of uh, elderberry and kind kind of a, a almost like a vegetable taste to it, um, which which sounds gross. And uh, it was it was pretty good. I don't think it's quite as good as the the normal uh, U.S. Mountain Dew grape flavor, which is pitch black. Um, that's much more of, I guess what you would say is like a, a, 
I don't know, an intense grape flavor. Uh, like, but this one is a little bit more uh, subtle in its grape flavor. But um, it's as far as buying it from Fye, it's definitely overpriced. It's like six dollars a can um, because it's imported from Japan. So I just, I, I just wanted to try it, and uh, I would say it's worth just giving giving it a whirl if if you're in the mood for a different flavor of Mountain Dew. Um, since it's Christmas, a lot of candy has been going around, and around Christmas time, I always go out of my way to get uh, some of the Lindt chocolate truffle balls um, that are always around, and I found a flavor that I hadn't seen before. I, I'm not entirely sure if it's new or if I just had never encountered it, uh, but they have a butter pecan flavor, and my, my two favorite ones are just the regular milk chocolate ones and the, the mint cookie crumble ones, uh, but these definitely give them a run for their money. They have just like a slight pecan crunch in them, and the 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 butter flavor really like brings brings out the flavor of the truffle as well, um, and they're they're very good. I would like to maybe try and put them on like a cookie of some kind for for the holidays maybe next year. Um, there's also dipped Skittles that are out now, which are Skittles that are covered in yogurt, like you know yogurt covered pretzels or yogurt covered raisins, and they are a bit of a an odd flavor at first but then i after i had like a couple by themselves and then i tried like i tried a few more to see and as as you have a few more of them the the skittle flavor starts to mesh better with the the yogurt coating i think the bigger problem is that because skittle is a like a hard uh shell candy the yogurt doesn't really um mesh with the candy very well it kind of just crumbles off of it and so the flavor doesn't mix as well as it maybe it should until you have, you know, multiple them, you know, chewed up in your mouth. Um, so if, uh, if you try them and you don't like them first, I would say like try a few more because it might just be like something where your mouth has to adjust to it because it's such a, I don't know, a new thing, I guess. And then, uh, kind of on the cereal side of things, they have, uh, cocoa puffs with lucky charms, marshmallows, which is obviously exactly what it is. And I feel like they need to just have a lot more cereals, where they just put the Lucky Charms marshmallows in them because it makes the cereal that much better. Uh, Cocoa Puffs was one of my favorite cereals growing up, and having the Lucky Charms marshmallows in them is just a nice bonus. At one time, they had Cocoa Puffs with just regular marshmallows in them, but there's something just that's that's special about the Lucky Charms marshmallows. And then I also tried uh, Fruit Loops flavored Pop Tarts, which are pretty great because they're not too far of a departure from strawberry frosted Pop Tarts, but they just have that Fruit Loops. Uh, distinct flavor in, inside of the uh, the jelly and also I'm not even sure if it's the jelly that's doing it it might just be the frosting that's on the Pop-Tarts uh, that gives it the, the Fruit Fruit Loops flavor and scent uh, but those are those are pretty good as well and that's that's my, my junk food roundup okay and uh, let's move on to what we've been playing Jacob what have you been playing uh, over the holidays I broke out the Nintendo Switch version of Dark Souls the 2011 uh, modern classic that has inspired more writing and more videos and more speedruns and many other modern games. Uh, which you've heard is true. It's an incredibly punishing, difficult game. It's also one that I find incredibly rewarding. And once you learn its systems, once you learn how to be patient with it, it is just uh, one of the most uh, intoxicating experiences I think ever released in any game. And you can start. You've, you've started to see like it influence so many other modern games, even games that aren't as punishing or difficult. Like uh, the new Star Wars game, the Jedi Fallen Order game, borrows a lot of structural choices from this game uh, to varying uh, degrees of success. And it, re- replaying it, it's it's still it's a clunky, it's a 2011 game, uh, but uh, the Nintendo Switch version works quite well. And it's a reminder of 
of its influence over the past decade, and it's a really, really nice way to play it, especially portable. There's Dark Souls and Nintendo Switch. And uh, I've also started playing Control on the Xbox One. This is essentially uh, uh, what if X-Files and Twin Peaks was an action game. Uh, it's set in the government organization that houses and protects and controls all of the top secret artifacts and objects of power, they're called, throughout the world. Uh, things have gone wrong. And essentially, you you're, you walk in one day to this building to solve, uh, looking to solve a mystery, find yourself embroiled in uh, all these conspiracies, lots of things to shoot, lots of things to explore, lots of extremely fun memos to read. It's so much fun to like sum across all these uh, bureaucratic memos describing these very Twin Peaksy and X-Files-esque uh, scenarios, situations, and objects. Uh, it's, it's incredibly fun. The writing is very sharp. Uh, that is Control. It's on uh, all the major platforms, but I'm told the PlayStation 4 version uh, has some serious framework issues, so stick with Xbox or PC if you can. Brad, you've been playing some stuff? Uh, I just learned how to play a card game called Canasta, uh, which is a card game that is in the Rummy family. My girlfriend's family uh, likes to play it a lot, and I had never played it before, so I uh, learned it over the holidays while I was in Utah for Christmas. And uh, it's pretty easy to pick up. Uh, it's really fun t- uh, team card game to play. You play it with multiple decks, uh, and it's just about collecting series of uh, the same kinds of cards. And there's a whole point system to it. And uh, yeah, it's just it's a really enjoyable, uh, fun card game to play with uh, when you got a group of friends around. And that is, you've also been listening to something. Yeah, so uh, since we don't really have a listening section, we just usually lump our audio stuff into the playing area. My girlfriend and I picked up the podcast To Live and Die in L.A., which did did somebody talk about this on this show once before, like a while back? No? I I think I talked about the movie, but never the podcast. I'm not sure that I I think the the movie is different because this podcast is is a true crime podcast about a young um actress who uh went uh, albanian actress who went missing in los angeles and the uh i guess the the intrigue and the the story that followed um as her uh boyfriend became a suspect and like his family becomes a big part of it and it just unfolds and it has so many weird twists and details and turns that like it feels like a david fincher movie and it's very compelling, and just uh, we we were so addicted to it, and we worked through it as fast as we could whenever we had to uh, drive somewhere, and when we were traveling. Uh, so, so, and this is a very recent thing too. The the, the case unfolded. Um, I I believe it was 20, 2018 or twenty. Uh, yeah, I think it was twenty eighteen that this um, happened uh, from the spring over the summer, and uh, this journalist fo- followed it and was working with a private investigator to try and uncover details, and it's. Very suspenseful and captivating. So if you like true crime stories, uh, To Live and Die in L.A. is definitely worth listening to. Very cool. Okay, so that does it for us. You can find more of all of our work at SlashFilm.com. You can find this podcast, SlashFilm Daily, published almost every weekday on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at Peter at SlashFilm.com. And please rate and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends, spread the word, and we'll see you tomorrow. And th- thanks, HT. We don't have to listen to the book today, so no, yeah. the book the book is open. In fact, it's themed today. It's themed. It's themed. themed. Uh, it's themed. themed to our conversation about uncut mm, gems. Delicious steamed book. <laughs> it is themed to uncut gems, and you'll soon see why. 
uh, Peter, one thing has always kept him from making a fast buck, a slow horse. Wait, wait, okay, explain this one to me. One thing has always kept him from making a fast buck. Oh, because the horse horse. bucks. I get it. Okay. You can move on. No, that's not it. What? Wait, a I, slow horse. I, I don't. It's literally that you're just bad at betting on horses, Peter. That's it. That's it. Oh, you're, you're bad at gambling. Is is the joke? Oh, well, I get it because of uncut gems. When yeah. Chris's bookie's place burned down, the only thing the firemen saved were his IOUs. Oh no, they're gonna break my legs. Oh no. Ht. She keeps putting bets on the horses' noses. She said, "Bet on the legs." What? HG, <laughs> no. He put bets on the horses' noses. You should bet on the legs. Oh. Brad, he bet on a sure thing tip. He got it right from the horse's mouth. It turned out to be a horse laugh. Yeah, I, yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, did I do Ben yet? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ben. He bet on a horse that he was told would walk in. The only trouble was the other horses ran. <laughs> nice try, Ben. Nice yeah. try. <laughs> well, you all married a million dollar baby, but after taxes, she wasn't worth a dime. <laughs> in Las Vegas, Peter even loses money on the stamp machine. Oh, wait. So is this because HT had like a lot of movies to get through? And you're going through a lot more jokes? No, no, no. Don't blame me on this, Peter. <laughs> Peter, no one is, is your equal at hitting the, squ- the nail squarely on the thumb. <sighs> oh, boy. It's a terrible gambling joke. If Peter ever sold lighting you fixtures, <laughs> sun wouldn't set. You know whose fault this is? Penn and Teller's. <laughs> How is Penn and Teller to blame for this? It Penn, always Penn... comes back around. <laughs> Penn and Teller are funny. Hard... Not only has Peter a hard row to hoe, he hasn't even got a hoe. This can't be the same gambling section, right? This is not even a game. Chris, he's a real Don Juan with women. They Don Juan to have anything to do with him. <laughs> that one was actually funny. funny. Wow, that one's actually good. <laughs> That's the funniest joke in the whole book. Oh man, that is a classic. 